Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, George Kalin. He's a principal investigator at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, he's a professor as well, part of the Department of Translational Molecular Pathology. So we're going to talk about uh, his work, uh, particularly in the context of cancer, because this will be for the uh, cancer book that uh, we're assembling. So, George, thanks for coming. Well, thank you. My pleasure to be again with you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I know MD Anderson is is probably world-known for cancer research. What's the particular focus of your research I want to ask you about at MD Anderson, and then we'll, we'll go from there? Yeah, so uh, MD Anderson, in fact, it's a wonderful place because um, uh, this institution is putting together both an uh, outstanding clinical uh, activity. So it's basically the world number one cancer center for uh, phase one clinical trials. So the place where you test on patients what are the newest and the most innovative therapeutics. And this is combined with an uh, uh, extraordinary powerful research uh, team working both on fundamental discoveries. So what it's new to discovering cancer at the level of the genome, DNA, at the level of transcriptome, RNAs, and the level of the proteins, at the level of cancer cells, or at the level of tumor microenvironment. Tumor microenvironment contains, let's say, immune cells. And you know that one of our uh, esteemed colleagues, it's uh, Jim Ellison, who got Nobel Prize for uh, discovery of checkpoint inhibitors. But we have also a lot of uh, other investigators working, let's say, on neurons, like Amit Moran, a young uh, and bright investigator on head and neck. Other working on uh, immunology, like Kati Rezvani, for example, and Ijish Park. Kati Rezvani started uh, a wonderful uh, new therapeutics named CAR-NK. So the research going on what is new to discovering, 
and moving uh, toward uh, therapeutic development with uh, the IAX people, Institute of uh, for Cancer Science, uh, Applied Cancer Science, under uh, Phil Jones. So making a long story short, yes, it's a wonderful place to be because it has all the components, clinical, fundamental research, and my lab is doing something that uh, it's uh, quite new, a decade ago uh, discovered, and, uh, and I would say very interesting for many aspects of cancer. We are focusing uh, on the genes, so the units of the genome, but the units of the genome who do not codify protein coding genes, as is a dogma of molecular biology, DNA, RNA, protein, but on the genes who codify so-called non-coding RNAs. What are non-coding RNAs? Are pieces of RNA, short as 20 nucleotides, like microRNAs, or very long, up to tens of kilobases, of RNAs who never codify for protein. So it's a completely challenging dogma and change of molecular biology dogma. What are doing this RNA? They are doing a plethora of functions, all or most of them converging in the regulation of proteins. So the genome produces proteins through coding gene. And in the same time, over 95% of the genome is producing this non-coding transcript who regulates the expression of protein. Are this important for patients? Of course. Why? Because non-coding RNAs, and I and Carlo Croce in 2002 were the first to discover the fact that microRNAs are important for cancer. It was the first ever discovery that non-coding RNAs are very important for any type of disease. So these non-coding RNA not only are mechanistically important, but we identify now day by day more the fact that they can be used as biomark for identification of early cancers or for identification of bad cancers, and also they can be used therapeutically. So there are now new techniques who try either to knock down, to put down highly expressed non-coding RNA, which is oncogenic. So it's bad. It's doing uh, cell proliferation, cell migration in, uh, in tumor, or to restitute, to restore the expression of non-coding RNAs, which are uh, uh, very low, and therefore, they lost protective activity for the tumor. Now, my lab is working on all these aspects, molecular biology, biomarker and therapeutics, and we try to focus on deadly cancers. Of course, maybe some people will a little smile, all, all or most of the cancer are deadly. Now, I want here only to, to make you aware that this is not the truth. Not all the cancers are deadly. For example, I give the ex uh, examples. It's already classic. The acute lymphocytic leukemia in children. It was a wonderful uh, clinician that uh, unfortunately we lost him at over 90 years old uh, due to COVID, named Emil Freireich. Emil Freireich with his colleague Emil Frey in 96, when they were at uh, National Institute of Health, they developed the combinatorial chemotherapy. So they put together two chemotherapeutics in a therapeutic regimen for the children with acute lymphocytic It was a huge, a revolutionary uh, advance in the therapeutics. And if you will go back to the, to the newspaper on that times, these two pioneers are named also criminals. Why? 
because a lot of people, including uh, medical opinion, were thinking that combining in children and in patients with cancer two drugs, chemotherapeutics, who each independently were very toxic, will destroy the body of the cancer patient. It was not so, and ALL is already a huge example in children of curable cancer. Chronic- well, since, they, since they were doing a combined therapeutic, did they use less of each therapeutic, and is that why it was less toxic? Not only less, but they combine different mechanisms. So one, it's working, let's say, on the DNA, breaking the DNA of malignant cells. So uh, impeding, uh, uh, modifying the proliferation. And another, it's working, let's say, on the metabolism of malignant cell. So are different approaching to target malignant cell. Another example, it's chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is a very dangerous and tricky disease. And my lab is working on this type of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Why is deadly cancer? Because 90% of the patient are surviving very well now with the therapeutics of ibrutinib and venetoclax. But up to 10% are developing a combination, a complication named Richter transformation, which develops these mature B-cells, lymphocytes, mature lymphocytes in a very aggressive type of cancer. It's killing the patient in less than 10 months, including in MDR. So my lab is focusing on this type of deadly cancer, which are the most aggressive type of cancer. Richter transformation, and another, it's peritoneal carcinomatosis, when the malignant cells go to the peritoneum, to the site which is covering the intestines, to say in this way, you know, for all the readers. This type of cancer, of metastasis, is very dangerous because it comes from five different types of cancers. Ovarian, gastric, colon, pancreatic, and cholangiocarcinoma. And uh, in the moment in which the patient has this complication and the, their belly go larger and larger because of ascites of liquid in the peritoneum. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. In that moment, you cannot do anything. We have here a wonderful clinician, for example, Jaffer Ajani, and I give this name exactly to, to make curious the, the readers uh, in order to go to find out about these colleagues who are really doing a wonderful job in therapy. So making a long story short, my lab is doing, I would say, innovative research, out-of-the-box research, exactly on topics that are at the core, at the center of uh, malignant mechanisms, trying to identify why this non-coding RNAs are important, but very importantly, very excitingly, how we can apply it for the patient. Okay, well, going back to non-coding RNAs, so do they, repula- do they regulate epigenetic effects of cells? Do they control the epigenetics, you know, how the up and down regulation happens? Yes, basically, the non-coding RNAs, as I said, are short, small RNAs under 200 nucleotides and long. Now, 
I say generally, so I don't try to, to separate them in different classes because generally they are regulated by the same mechanism. So why these genes are abnormal in cancer? Because many causes. One, they are located, they sit in the places of DNA that are broken or are amplified during malignancy. So when a piece of DNA having a microRNA inside is broken, then the gene disappears. So theoretically, the expression of the gene is going up. When the piece of the genome harboring a non-coding RNA, it's amplified, it's multiplied like by a serocopy machine, then being very many copies of the gene, the expression, the amount of molecules present in the cell, it's very high. Another way to modify the expression is exactly what you say, through epigenetics, through methylation. So by methylating the DNA, the expression of some genes goes down. In fact, some of this uh, methylation occur in promoters in the DNA region who take care of the expression of uh, the microRNAs or long encoding RNAs, and their expression is going down. Then there are also more trickier and more complicated mechanisms. These non-coding RNAs, as the name is saying, are RNAs. These RNAs are binding to some proteins who take care of processing these RNAs. So from a long non-coding RNA, it makes it in a short non-coding RNA that can do the functions. If these proteins are abnormal by, let's say, mutations, then uh, the processing of non-coding RNA is abnormal and their function is abnormal. What are doing these abnormally expressed non-coding RNAs in cancer? They are binding to the proteins and taking care of altering the expression of the proteins. They are binding to other RNA by complementarity, by base complementarity, modifying the function of other RNA in the cells, like, for example, pseudogenes, or they are binding to DNA. They go in the nucleus, they bind to DNA, and they modify the function of DNA. Exactly, again, as you said, epigenetic regulation of the genome through non-coding RNAs. So this little or long pieces of uh, RNAs that the people initially were saying uh, are not important are very pleiotropic. They know to do a lot of things. Now, to say also the reality, the cells are full of these non-coding RNAs, also in normal cells. So they are not bad per se, and I don't want to give to the reader the concept that these non-coding RNA are bad things. They are wonderful things. Why? Because they are involved in anything what means life and in anything what means uh, normal function. They are important in how the blood cells develop toward mature cells, who, by the way, can take care of, of the immunity. Immunity anti-viruses, uh, immunity anti-SARS-CoV-2. If you like this podcast, Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, these non-coding RNAs are also important because they are in, they are involved in shaping the forms and uh, and uh, the way in which our body is uh, structured, in the way our neurons are working. So non-coding RNAs are present in any type of cell, are present in any type of tissue. And they are doing, uh, they are contributing in any type of function that we can think of. 
Now, what is the peculiarity of this non-coding RNA is that they are very many. Coding genes, protein coding genes, are about 20,000. And in 2000, 2002, when the human genome was sequenced, every scientist from genomics was waiting to find hundreds of thousands of coding genes. You know how many coding genes were found? About 20, 22,000. It, it's a very nice paper in uh, science in 2002 by a very famous Romanian scientist, Victor Velculescu, in his group. They count the, the coding genes and the numbers were very, very low. 20, what it's interesting is that these 20,000 protein coding genes come out from about 2% of the genome. Then the question is, is the other 98% of the genome mostly trash? Evolution, it's not uh, uh, taking care of this piece of the genome. No, the other 98%, most of it represents the house, the location of non-coding RNA. So the non-coding RNAs are in the numbers of hundreds of thousands if not millions. Yes, you hear me well. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So one or two orders of magnitude more as protein coding genes. This proves simply by a numerical, uh, a numerical uh, aspect how important they are. Because being, let's say, one million non-coding RNAs versus 20,000 protein coding genes, it tells you how many functions resides simply on the non-coding RNA piece of the of the genome. Well, if they're 95% of the genome, I'm sure they're maybe 95% of uh, a lot of the activity. You know, it, it makes sense that they're a majority that they would at least have a significant position in cellular metabolism and cellular function. So that makes sense. Yes, basically non-coding RNAs are important in any of these functions. They are not important independently. They work hand in hand with proteins. But if you are thinking to any type of function, any type of biological process, any type of disease, including psychiatric disorders, including infectious disorders, all are very important uh, function of uh, non-coding RNA. All right, so what, what, what are you finding in terms of that's different in cancers, in particular the cancers you study versus normal cells? What's changed in the, how the non-coding RNAs are produced and used? Yeah, good question. So uh, non-coding RNAs in cancer are uh, modified in various ways. The most important is uh, difference in the expression. So difference in the number of non-coding RNAs that are present in the cell. Usually either they are very high numbers, and this is the name, it's oncogenic non-coding RNAs, so they, they behave like oncogenes, like bad genes, or other uh, ones, like, for example, MIR-1516 that we discover as the first non-coding RNAs important in any type of disease. By the way, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, these MIR-1516 are locked down, are very few molecules in malignant B cells versus the normals. Another mechanism that the people were not uh, uh, very convinced, and again, I was the luckiest one who discovered are mutations presently exactly in the site of a microarray. Now, you have to understand why this is a very, very uh, critical concept because microarrays, as I told you, have 20 nucleotides. A normal protein coding gene has 2,000 nucleotides, a cDNA, and it's widespread on about 20,000 pieces, uh, 20,000 nucleotide piece of the genome. So it's about 100 times larger as messenger RNA 
and 1,000 times larger as location in the genome. So you are expecting the mutations to hit a protein coding gene because it's very large. But you are not expecting the mutation to hit very small, very short RNA. The fact that we found mutation in microRNAs shows that they are essential, they are critical, they are causative for cancer. This is the second mechanism. The third mechanism is what I was saying, difference in processing. So non-coding RNA, as many other molecules in the life, they are produced by the genome in the precursor forms. They are not from the first step ready to work. So they have to be chopped. They have to be trimmed by different proteins. So if these proteins are not working well, the cell accumulates non-functional, non-coding RNA. So these are expressed at normal levels, but they are not moving downstream on the processing pathway towards the active molecule. So the cells have basically inactive, non-useful Molecules. Also, this can be abnormal in cancer. What, why would the cells produce molecules that are not useful? So, they got to be used for something. Yeah, they do not produce molecules who are not used. The fact that the proteins who are trimming these not useful molecules toward useful molecules can, can be altered in cancer and not present. So the cell is doing what it's supposed to do, is generating precursor molecules of non-coding RNA, but the proteins who can take care of processing these precursors toward active molecules are not present. This is a very tricky way to hit a non-coding RNA, not directly by mutation, not directly by expression, but through protein-coding genes who are taking care of cleaning the pathway of uh, non-coding RNAs. So this... Oh, so if you, if you increase the presence of the right proteins, all this, I guess, cellular debris that seems to occur in cancer may be cleared up? It can be cleared up in, in some instances, yeah. And modi the modification of the processing uh, proteins was tried as a therapeutic approach. Why it's not working easily? Because this changed very many non-coding RNAs and very many components uh, in a cell. By changing very many components in a cell, the outcome is very unpredictable because there are no two cancer patients identical. Doesn't matter uh, the diagnosis has the same name of the disease, the same stage, the same grade, they are the same uh, age, same gender. Neither nor two patients are never identical. There are peculiarities that nobody can uh, understand yet uh, perfectly. This is also why in MD Anderson and in many other cancer centers, mostly, let's say, in very many cancer centers in the world, cancer patients uh, have a very important uh, therapeutic technical advance. Their tumors, it's sequenced at the level of DNA, it's uh, profiled at the level of at RNA to identify the personalized characteristic of these tumors. It's so-called personalized medicine, which is extremely important because in this way, the physician and the patients know the peculiarity, the fingerprint specific for each tumor for each patient, and they can give to the patients for a specific tumor the best drugs that are available uh, at present time. Unfortunately, well, how, how do they know what the target? What, do you, what would the drugs do? For instance, would they yeah. restore the missing proteins? They restore some. Some some work on the missing proteins. Some work on the mutated proteins. Some some are working on the immune cells who should uh, uh, 
cut should kill the malignant cells, checkpoint, checkpoint inhibition. This is why this is an absolutely outstanding advance uh, therapeutically, because what is doing the checkpoint inhibition, it's breaking a break. Breaking a break means activation. Before this, the concept in cancer was we have to stimulate immune cells directly. The stimulation, unfortunately, was so strong by different molecules that these immune cells were overreacting. They were killing the malignant cells, but then they were killing also normal cells in the patient with a lot of other reactions. The beauty of this new concept of checkpoint inhibition is that checkpoint molecules are breakers of immune cells. By breaking the breakers, you do not overstimulate the immune cells and they start killing the right amount of cells at the right location. So, for example, in 2020, which we can say it's an ugly year for what's happened with the pandemics, but in 2020 in January, it came out uh, the first wonderful news that uh, one type of cancer, malignant uh, metastatic, uh, the, the metastatic melanoma, uh, the mortality decreased significantly in the last 10 years. You know why? Because the addition of the checkpoint molecules in the therapy. This show also the wonderful power of science. So I don't want to go further and further in this um, no, already overstated topic of, uh, of COVID-19, but we have examples in front of our eyes of how important fundamental research is. 1990, the scientists were discovering checkpoint molecules. 2002, first drugs were produced. 2012, clinical trials was uh, starting in patients. And 2020, uh, already the mortality by a very dangerous type of cancer and a very frequent type of cancer. Metastatic melanoma is very frequent, you no, know, because of the sun, because of all these uh, outside uh, risk factors, uh, mortality drops significantly. All right, but one so it sounds like multifactor or multi types of chemo included with checkpoint inhibitors, including a way to get these uh, microRNA precursors to be cleaned up. If you had a therapy that did all three, would that be overkill? Or do you think that would be maybe an ideal solution? So I would say uh, exactly what you said. It's a very good point that you raised. Uh, combinatorial therapeutic with multiple modalities is a way to move forward in cancer. And this we know it for years. We did not... Uh, uh, discover the, the golden egg. Basically, surgery plus radiation therapy for rectal cancer. Combinatorial, combinatorial regimens of uh, chemotherapy, as I told you, fry, rack, and fry. But also, you can start combining uh, chemo radiation uh, therapy plus uh, checkpoint inhibitor because the radiation will increase the number of mutations in the cells, so the immune cells will find different epitopes, different fingerprints at the surface of the cells, will be better uh, eater, better killer of the cells. We are working very hard to have combinatorial therapeutics for small RNAs. We can use two different categories, microRNAs and small interfering RNAs in order to knock down multiple protein coding genes from the same pathway, for example, in ovarian cancer, and, and so on. So, in fact, combinatorial therapeutics, I would say, it's the next uh, step. Why? Because not only reduce the amount of each drug, reducing the specific toxicity, but it's killing the tumor from multiple perspectives, killing the malignant cells 
and also stimulating the immune cells or uh, blocking the blood supplies to the tumor plus uh, uh, killing the malignant cells. So in terms of the approval process for drugs, do you think that the FDA would have a pipeline that could be a multifactorial treatment like this? Or is the nature of drug approvals themselves going to make something like this impossible? Like, how would you do this in the clinic? So I would say uh, in the last years, uh, FDA started approving much uh, quicker everything because uh, uh, the checkpoint uh, molecules... uh, number and uh, and clinical trial expanded so much that the approval was uh, was very uh, very much speedy on the other side when you are doing combinatorial therapeutics you are using already approved drugs so then you have only to approve the combinatorial of approved drugs so it's a speedy there are speedier and quick mechanisms fda to to push this one to our clients. Because let's be fair, what we are doing all in research, in clinic and in, uh, in this administrative institution, we are working for the patient. So our interest is that everything is uh, approved uh, with a big speed and the speed increased uh, in, in this approval. Oh, so are there any trials right now that you know of that are, are attempting to combine two or three different therapies? Like what's the, the ones that you see that have the most promise right now? Of course, uh, there are now. It is very easy. Uh, all the all the readers can uh, go to nih.gov uh, uh, clinical trials, where they can find thousands of clinical trials that are approved with very nice information. When was the approval date? How many patients uh, uh, should be included? When is the close date? What are the factors that the, the clinicians are looking for? And I would say. One very important aspect, now I come back to this uh, multiple modality of checkpoint molecules plus other type of uh, therapeutics, surgery, radiation, uh, chemotherapy. We are working very much to bring to the clinic non-coding RNA therapeutics. There are some clinical trials in non-coding RNAs uh, that start to pop up in cancer and also in other type of uh, of diseases. So basically, I would say uh, the spectrum of uh, of therapies for cancer patients and also for other type of diseases, it's increasing yearly, which is a good news for the patient. It's a good news for the for the medical field. If I yep, can say one more thing, it's where we have to still improve very much, not only in therapeutics, it's in the early diagnosis of cancer. So if we will be very good in finding cancers before the metastasis, before they are too big, this will increase the survival of the patients in a very large way and will not need additional therapeutics. So we have to put a lot of effort in early cancer diagnosis. Yeah, no, that makes sense. George, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So the best way to find about my work is to read about non-coding RNA because I was lucky to discover with my former mentor, Carlo Croce, the non-coding RNA involvement in cancer. And here it's... Uh, uh, there are now over 60,000 papers here. Also on the MD Anderson site, uh, uh, there are the laboratories of, uh, of, the main, of the PI, so they will find uh, my laboratory, which is composed by people from all over the world, because, you know, in, in this country, in science, only the sky is the limit. And basically, they can also contact me. My pleasure to, to discuss and my pleasure to learn from everybody who is interested in non-coding RNA. And thank you also for what you are doing. I think it's wonderful that you stay in touch with uh, the people who are doing science because basically your work is very important because it's bringing to everyone what it's a very complex and a very complicated process, a process to make 
discoveries. If the people will understand how we make the discoveries, they will send their children towards this type of education in doing research. Because in research, it's a never, never inflation. There are so many things to discover that, believe me, for many, many years from now, it's a need of young and bright people. And what you are doing, it's really extraordinarily helpful for all of us who are doing science. Thank you. Oh, thank you, George. Very good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.